Everyone got quiet. (laughs) So I might as well, I might as well start. Uh, You you still have about 25 seconds, but I'll go ahead and take it. Um, So, um, welcome back. We're looking at the topic. I hope you picked up your handout when you came in. We're looking at the topic, topics, heaven and hell. Uh, Probably spend more of my time on hell because heaven is an easy sell. Everybody likes that idea. Even pagans like that idea. Uh, Everybody seems to die and go to the white light. Um, As Christians, we question that, by the way. Uh, Everybody doesn't go to the white light. But anyway, um, we're looking at heaven and hell and um, try to make some interesting comments about it. So if you look at your sheet, we'll we'll kind of get heaven out of the way quickly. And then, um, because I want to talk about some of the objections to hell. Uh, there's not a lot of objections to heaven. There may be a lot of, I think, um, interesting concepts about heaven, but uh, not a lot of objections to heaven. But there are a lot of objections to hell. So take your Bible as we, as we begin looking at heaven, and uh, keep in mind what we said on Monday about the resurrection of the body. Heaven in the Christian uh, community has always been termed the intermediate state. That's where you go upon death. Uh, to await the final end, uh, which is the return of Christ, consummation of the kingdom, all of that stuff, resurrection of the body. But heaven is where uh, the believer goes upon death uh, to show you the immediacy of heaven. I've given you two texts. And by the way, if you were to look at the New Testament, the Old Testament, both testaments say more about the resurrection of the body at the end of history than um, where you go at the, at the point of death. Uh, one of the reasons is, in the Jewish tradition, they just really have that resurrection at the end of history. Uh, they don't really have uh, the, the full-blown concept of a heaven at the point of death that Christians do. But even in the New Testament, uh, text about the resurrection of the body outnumber text about uh, what happens to you at the point of death. Um, But there are texts about the point of death. So if you will turn to Luke's account of the crucifixion, Luke 23. Uh, Someone referenced this either on Monday Monday evening or Monday morning. But if you look at chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And here's a very famous text beginning at verse 39. These texts are listed for you on the sheet. 2339, Gospel of Luke. Um, one of the criminals, you know, got a criminal on either side of him, crucified. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. And then here comes um, a powerful part of the text. And he said, the thief on the cross, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, That is both a prayer and a profession of faith, as you notice. Um, He is professing faith in this Jesus as a king, as a king with a kingdom, which is a rather strange thing to do to dying criminal being executed by the state. Uh, 
But um, this, this thief recognizes him as a king with the kingdom. And he says, remember me. There's the prayer part. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now again, um, as a good Jew, the thief, as a good Jew, is thinking about something at the end of history. Because again, they have those convictions about the end of history. Uh, you remember Ezekiel 37, you know, them bones, them bones, the valley of dry bones, all those things. Uh, that resurrection concept was part of Judaism, particularly later Judaism, um, at the time and right before the time of Jesus. So they, they have a, a concept of what will happen at the end of history. Uh, so this Jewish, and the reason I know he's Jewish is he's been crucified by the state, Rome, um, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. Uh, that's why Paul was beheaded. Roman citizens got the much more merciful beheading. Uh, but he's crucified, so that means he's Jewish. He's under Roman occupation. And we know what kind of criminal he is. Um, he's not really a criminal or a thief. The Greek word is lestai. And what he is, he's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel against the authority of Rome, and that's why Rome's crucifying him. So he's Jewish. He's a Jewish insurrectionist, a rebel. Um, So he's asking Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He's looking at something far future. But then look at what Jesus says, uh, verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, So there's the immediacy of what happens at death. So the thief uh, professes faith in Jesus as king with the kingdom. The thief uh, asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, so that's, that's what we call heaven. That's the intermediate state where you go to reside with God in, in full bliss and joy and peace um, until the resurrection of the body. Um, An interesting side note on this text, you probably know that those people who knock on your doors in pairs, they are are, um, one of the very few groups uh, who who profess to have something to do with Christianity that has no concept of heaven or hell. Um, They they believe kind of rather Jewishly that something will happen at the end of history. But they just believe that you reside in the grave uh, until at the end of history. Um, they call that concept, others call that concept, soul sleep. You just sleep in the grave until the resurrection of the body. Again, historic Christianity does both immortality of the soul. You go to be with the Lord at death and the resurrection of the body at the end of history. Well, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't have a concept of heaven or hell. Um, I remember one time... Um, I'm going to tell you what they do with this verse in just a moment. One time I'd, I actually ended up doing a funeral for Jehovah's... Well, no, she was Methodist. But her daughter that made all the arrangements, her only kin, was Jehovah's Witness. And uh, learned a lot about her and that movement. But when I sat down at the funeral home in Charlotte with this daughter to plan her Methodist mama's funeral, she looked at me and said, Can you do this? without making any reference to the divinity of Jesus or heaven or hell. Because they reject all that. And I said, I won't be um, 
belligerent about it, but I, no, I probably, that will slip in. It will slip in and slip out of me in a funeral. Um, when I use Lord Jesus Christ, I'm talking about his divinity. Um, they don't have a concept of heaven or hell or divinity of Jesus. Um, so it's interesting, if, if you look at their New World Translation, which when they knock on your door and they visit with you, if you talk with them long enough, they'll be delighted to give you a New World Translation. It's a fascinating translation. Uh, they reject the divinity of Christ. So um, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, where the Greek really says, and the rest of us say that it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, in the New World Translation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. Yeah, that's not really, can't do that to the Greek, but they do. But what they do with this text is even more fascinating. They say what Jesus says to the thief on the cross is a question. You think you're going to be with me today in paradise? Again, rather fascinating. Uh, they're the only people that think this is a question rather than a statement by Jesus. And or they do that, by the way. In the Greek, uh, there are no punctuation marks, but you can tell from the tense of the verbs whether it's a question or not. In the Greek, there's no punctuation marks. Actually, in the original Greek, there's not even any spaces between the words. You had to save space on those expensive scrolls. Um, but they, they, they say that they know what kind of punctuation marks should go here, and it should be a question. You know, Jesus just is looking at the fascinating thing uh, that the thief on the cross asks of him and says, so you, you really think you're going to be with me today in paradise? Well, the rest of us see it as an affirmation. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, to give you a little concept of heaven, uh, the, the word paradise. You're not going to find that word very often in the, in the Bible. Uh, it's a loan word from uh, the Persian. And you remember the Jewish people spent time in exile in Babylon, um, which is the precursor of the Persian Empire. So they picked up that word there, paradise. Uh, it literally means a, a walled garden, a walled, secure, beautiful garden. So that starts getting at the concept, the Christian concept of heaven. Anyway, so notice the immediacy. Today you will be with me in paradise. Um, paradise, a walled, secure garden. Um, because you have professed faith in me, Jesus, you're king with the kingdom, and you've asked me to remember you. you, you you're, you've prayed to me. So there's one of the most overt texts in the Bible that at the point of death, um, you get to enter um, some bliss in the presence of God. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, Paul says a whole lot more about the resurrection of the body at the end of history. But he does talk about the immortality of the soul. And as a result of the immortality of the soul, at death, you just go on in, in, in continuing in living in the presence of God. And this is, his, this is the most famous section from Paul's writings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and following. For we know... That if the tent, and what he's referencing by tent here is our physical body that we inhabit in this world. Not our spiritual existence in heaven or our spiritual body in the resurrection. He's talking about 
the physical body we have in this life. He calls it a tent, which one of the, one of the things you know about a tent, I, I'm really hoping you don't have a tent as your permanent dwelling. If you do, see me afterwards, we'll help you out a little bit. But a tent is basically a, a temporary dwelling. So you, you, you know why Paul's choosing that language. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed with death, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan. The older I get, the more I groan about this tent. Particularly early in the morning when I go down uh, a rather significant flight of stairs to my study. I, every time I'm walking down the stairs to my study in the, early in the morning, I, I think if anybody were watching me, I would look like my father in his 90s trying to get down those stairs. <laughs> anyway, we, we groan in this tent. For in this tent, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And that's where he's talking about what we obtain at the point of death. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. You, you want to make preparations for what you need to put on when your body gives way. You don't want to be found um, ashamed at death. Verse 4, for while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened, uh, not, that, not, that, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, that's our heavenly body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Yeah, we don't go from life to death, we go from death to life. Uh, This world is an increasing experience of death until it conquers us, and then we go to life. And that's what Paul's saying here. He he says, when we leave this world, we'll be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Uh, If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ, and that Spirit of Christ can't die. It's going to continue. That's why you, that's, that's your immortality part. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So again, just like the thief on the cross, you got two options. You're either on the cross or you're going to be with him in paradise. You're either in this life, you're, you're in the body, you're in the body, you're going to be ab- or you're going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So that's heaven. That's what Christian theologians have said for 2,000 years, our intermediate state. When you draw your last breath, you draw your next breath um, in, 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 this, in this existence. Um, so with that, I've given you some quotations that I like. Uh, to help you think a little bit more about heaven. You're probably not surprised. The first two comes from C.S. Lewis. The third one comes from Augustine, since I sort of um, criticized Augustine yesterday. We owe a lot to St. Augustine. He was the greatest theologian between the uh, New Testament and, and, the, and the Reformation. But a couple quotations from C.S. Lewis as you contemplate heaven. And by the way, I hope you contemplate heaven a lot. Um, In another place, C.S. Lewis says those people, those Christians who have been the most earthly good have been those who have thought the most about the next life. We accomplish what we accomplish in this world because of what we think about the next. Uh, Sometimes people think it's the other way around. Sometimes they think you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's an old quotation. 
Um, C.S. Lewis in the Christian faith says the opposite. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. Anyway, here's a quotation from The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. That was one of his first books he wrote in the 30s. It is a rather um, rational, objective view of pain and how we understand you know, that we got an all-powerful, all-loving God, but we still suffer in this world. Uh, so his problem of pain from the 30s is, is, is worth reading. It's very interesting. Um, it, it's really very interesting if you read the problem of pain, which is sort of his academic Christian theological discussion of pain, and then read it, read, read it alongside of uh, a Grief Observed. That's where he wrote about the pain he experienced in the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. And he wrote that 30 years later, 25 years later. And uh, one is very much an academic uh, evaluation or study of pain. The the other is um, a very personal, raw experience of pain and the grief observed. If you watch Shadowlands, that wonderful movie from back in the 90s where uh, Deborah Winger plays Joy Davidman and... and, um, Anthony Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis. That movie actually goes from a quotation from the um, problem of pain where where C.S. Lewis is at Oxford walking the halls, and he's speaking academically about pain to it ends with him in great pain after the death of uh, Joy Davidman. Anyway, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, great book. I recommend it. Um, This is a quotation from that. Your place in heaven will be made for you and you alone. Made because it was made for, because you were made for it. And I'll come back to that in a second. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. Um, C.S. Lewis in another place talks about, and he says this several times, because you are never completely satisfied by this life, that's proof that you were made for another life. Because you're you're never completely satisfied by this world, and I hope you aren't. Because you're never completely satisfied by this world, that's proof that you were made for another world. Um, and he's saying here uh, that that place in the other world is is a place especially made for you. It's where you'll really become you, um, and it's made for you like um, a glove's made for a hand. And then one of one of his very famous quotations from from um, letters to Malcolm about heaven is that simple quotation: "Joy is the serious business of heaven." Now, what fascinates me about that quotation is it comes from the last published work of C.S. Lewis. That's one of the last words he had published before he died: "Joy is the serious business of heaven." Um, yeah, commend C.S. Lewis to you. But since I gave Augustine a hard time last night, um, here, here comes a quotation from the City of God. We get a lot of our Christian, our fleshed-out Christian thought from Augustine, particularly um, the book The City of God. In small print, it's about a 1,000 pages. He wrote it to try to explain to people, yeah, the Roman Empire is crumbling around us. It's coming to an end. But we have another city that will not end. We have another city that's really our home. He's also, by the way, kind of writing to say the Christians weren't to blame for the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, There were people saying the Christians were to blame for the Roman Empire because after 
after uh, we took over the Roman Empire, we made them soft. Um, you know, we made them, we made them instead of power and might and authority, we turned them on to things like love, compassion, uh, and people said as a result of that, Romans said as a result of that, that's part of the reason the Roman Empire fell. Um, you may have heard of Edward Gibbons who wrote The Fall and the Decline of the Roman Empire. A class, another classic work of Western civilization is huge. But what has fascinated me in recent years, nobody wants to read the whole book anymore, The Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire. So what one particular, pub, what one particular publisher did, he yanked out the part where Christians were being blamed for the Roman Empire, and that publisher has just reprinted that part for this culture that we're in. But yeah, they, that, there are a lot of Romans who said because we, we valued love and mercy and grace and compassion, yeah, we, we made those Romans weak. And that's why they fell to the, to the barbarians. Anyway, so St. Augustine was, wrote that magnificent, huge city of God to, to argue a lot for the sake of Christianity. But in there, he just covers a lot of topics. Some of them almost accidentally as an aside. Heaven's one of those. Uh, as he's talking to the Christians who are freaking out because the Roman Empire around them is, is, is coming to an end. The world as they knew it was coming to an end. And of course, I don't like this term. Historians don't like this term. But a lot of people call the age that came after that the Dark Ages. And by the way, it did take. The Roman Empire fell in the 5th century. It did take to the 19th century uh, for us to get back to some of the technological advances they had in the 5th century. Uh, we did, uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, it took a long time to re- re- recoup our losses in the West. And it was thanks to people like Benedictine monks, uh, thanks to people like some of the Irish monks that, who sat around and they wrote, they, they, they transcribed a lot of our history. And if they didn't, you wouldn't know about Plato, you wouldn't know about Aristotle. A lot of history before the fall of the empire would have been lost. But anyway, you can't imagine. I mean, we, we moan and groan about what society is doing around us. Well, you know, think about if you're living at that period in the 5th century when the Roman Empire completely falls apart. And the Christians were part of that. They were living in that. They were enjoying it. They were enjoying all the benefits of the Roman Empire. And it was coming to an end, and the barbarians were destroying life as they knew it. So this is a quotation that Augustine of Hippo wrote concerning heaven. And this is really important, particularly as we talk about some of the erroneous concepts um, people have of heaven, thanks to Hollywood and thanks to other world religions. Uh, You know, you probably are not going to be shocked when I say I commend heaven to you. I commend theology of heaven to you, but I prefer you do a Christian theology of heaven. Um, you know, if, you have, if you've got seven heavens, we need to talk about that one. That's not a Christian concept, seven heavens. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I commend you to have a, con- a Christian concept of heaven. Anyway, here's, here's, here's something from, from um, Augustine. God himself shall be our reward. What makes heaven heaven is God. Not streets of gold, not, not, not wealth not a mansion. What makes heaven heaven in the Christian concept is the presence of God. You know, and the reason that's important is that's not true in some other world religions. Um, In Islam, their vision of paradise 
or heaven is the pleasures of this world on steroids. And sometimes you Christians, we Christians do the same thing. We want heaven to be the pleasures of this world on steroids. Um, no, men, you don't get seven virgins in heaven. I don't even know. I, I don't even think you'll get that if you convert to Islam. Um, but in the Christian faith, heaven is is not the pleasure of this world on steroids. Heaven is a completely different reality, and heaven is heaven because of the presence of God. That's where we'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's what will make heaven heaven. So. Um, you know, some of the other stuff will be wonderful. I, I look forward to reunion with some of my family that's there. I look forward to no pain. I look forward to a whole lot of stuff in heaven. But the thing that we look forward to the most is the fullest expression of the presence of God that we can experience. We have a little foretaste of heaven here, right? Um, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Hope you have a lot of foretaste of heaven here, uh, particularly when you worship. I hope you have a lot of foretaste of heaven. Uh, in heaven, you're going to be consumed in the presence of God. Um, yeah, the other stuff, you may, you'll get some other stuff, but it will pale in comparison. You know, I, I used to say when I got to heaven, and I still sort of say this, I, I, you know, when I sat down with C.S. Lewis or the Apostle Paul or John Wesley, you know, I've got a list of questions I want to ask them. But on my better moments, I think that when I get to heaven, all my questions will fade away. None of them will matter anymore when I get there. Again, keep, keep the primacy of heaven about the presence of God. Anyway, St. Augustine, God himself shall be our reward, and there is nothing greater or better than God himself. God has promised us himself. What else can be meant by his word through the prophet? I will be your God and you will be my people. Then I shall be their satisfaction. I shall be all that people honorably desire. Life, health, nourishment, satisfaction, glory, honor, peace, and all good things. This too is the right interpretation of the saying of the apostle that God may be all in all. And of course when the Christian theologians say the apostle, they mean Paul. God shall be the end of all our desires, who will be seen without end, loved without ceasing, and praised without weariness. That's heaven for the Christian community. So, yeah, don't worry about the harps or the clouds or the gates. The list goes on and on and on. Um, yeah, most people's concept of heaven comes from... Um, in the better moments, their concepts of heaven come from Milton and Dante. And I'm a big fan of Milton and Dante. In their worst moments, their concepts of heaven come from, from Hollywood. Yeah. We don't die and become angels. You do know that, right? Okay, good. Oh, that, that's the gospel according to Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, and I hear it at least once a week. You know, that person has gone to become an angel in heaven. No, see, and the reason that's, that's not just a trivial piece of theology. The Bible is clear. Angels are beneath us. Angels are ministering spirits to us. So if you become an angel, you're demoted. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I really do commend a Christian concept of heaven to you. It's far better 
and all these other things. Um, anyway, so now let's go to hell. Uh, that's more fun. Um, yeah, hell has fallen on hard times in, in recent in recent generations. Um, yeah, it's fallen on hard times because we we you know we think that the the ultimate goal in life and death is to be nice. It's not nice to talk about hell. It's not nice to say that there are some people going to hell. And, you know, the thing that we want most in life is to be nice. Jesus didn't die to make you nice. I hope you're a nice person. But there's something better in life than just being nice. I mean, we all can be nice. You can be nice without Jesus. Um, But that's not your goal in life, just to be nice. You can be decent, I hope, without Jesus. You can be civil, I hope, without Jesus. Uh, But Jesus offers us a whole lot more than that. Uh, When you talk about the concept of hell, one of the things I like to quickly say is um, in the New Testament, the person who speaks the most about hell is not that mean old Apostle Paul who was always in a bad mood. It was Jesus who said the most about hell in the New Testament. Uh, I just And I just kept them all in Matthew to keep you from running all over the Bible. But if you look, look at the text I've given you there, I've given you several from Matthew. Uh, the first text, by the way, and it's fascinating because it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. To you point out, it talks about hell. And they just kind of skip over that part of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, Jesus says, part of the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool... Be liable to the hell of fire. Um, look at the next quotation I've given you there from Matthew, Matthew 10, 28. And, and Jesus doesn't elaborate much on hell because by the time of Jesus, hell was a very common concept. So you could just say hell, mention hell, and people knew what he was talking about. So you don't have any extended discourses from Jesus on hell. You'll notice in these quotations, they're almost always... Just an aside that pops in while he's talking about something else. If you look at Matthew 10, 28, uh, same sort of thing. He's talking about other things. Uh, but as he's talking about other things, in 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fill him, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, common concept for Jesus and his crowd, and he doesn't even have to elaborate that. Um, one, of the, one of the more significant texts, and this may be the most elaborate, extended conversation Jesus has, where he gives us um, some hints about hell, is in Matthew 25. You know, the sheep and the goats. Very, very, very famous uh, text from, from Matthew. What you do the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you do to me, you know that text probably. Well, at the end of the text, um, he goes after he goes after the goats. He goes after the goats at the end of the text. Um, yeah, I say it. When I came here, there was a group studying a book entitled "Good Goats," and they made the mistake of inviting me to their last conversation in a dinner. It was a book to help you feel like their goats were okay. 
It's fine to be a goat. Nothing bad's going to happen to a goat. You know, it's all based on this Matthew 25 text. I wasn't fond of the book. Yeah, you want to be among the sheep, not among the goats. You know, it might offend you that Jesus says sheep good, goats bad. But Jesus says that. And you're going to have to do some really theological gymnastics to turn the goats into good goats who don't have a bad future. Um, and you notice in this text, you know, he, he's, he's talking about the goats and he's talking about the um, sheep. The sheep are on his right hand, the goats are on his left. You may have heard me say that's why my father would never let us sit on the left-hand side of the church. <laughs> and I, even as a kid, I used to say, well, our left or the preacher's left? And that, my dad didn't want his theology confused. But we always had to sit on this side, so he went with the preacher's right. We always had to sit on this side. I never grew up over here. I always sit on this side because of this text, the sheep and the goats. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be among the goats on the Lord's left. So look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left. Yeah, I can't read this without thinking about my father. <laughs> then, he, then, he, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Now, one of the things that we have gotten from this in Christian theology, and it's pretty much consensus Christian theology, but again, Jesus didn't give great details. But particularly in this text, it looks like hell is as long as heaven. He refers to eternal, eternal. he refers to both eternal, the eternal fire and eternal life here. They, they seem to both be eternal realities. And that's become the... the, the consensus doctrine among the Christian church. Not only that hell is hot, but hell is eternal. And part of that comes from this text. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for human beings. You'll be an anomaly if you go there. Jesus doesn't want you to go there. Jesus will keep you from going there. Uh, Hell was not prepared for human beings. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42. And again, you see Jesus talking here about mercy to other people and compassion, and he just kind of falls into these doctrines of hell. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I truly say to you, um, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal, there it is again, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, eternal life or eternal punishment is determined upon, and I, you know, I can say this because I've read the rest of the book, and I've read Christian theology. Um, which place you end up in is not depending on what you do, it's depending on who you love, where your faith is. Now, what this text is about is, is you, know, you, go to, you go to eternal life because of your love for Jesus Christ. Now, what this text is about is that we show our love to Jesus Christ by showing our love to the least among us. But it's Jesus we're really loving when we love the people around us. 
Which also means, according to this text, if you don't love the people around us, you're not loving him. So it's not about you know how good you are, how decent you are, how nice you are. That's all wonderful stuff, and we're all in favor of it, including Jesus. But what he's saying here is, you know, it's about loving me or not loving me, which makes perfect sense as we head to C.S. Lewis. If you don't love Jesus, the last place you want to go is heaven. That's all about Jesus. If you don't want anything to do with Jesus, the last place you want to go is heaven. It's all about Jesus. And that's why he's saying here, you know, if you love me, this is where you go. If you don't love me, well, you'll get your way. So with that, I have to go to C.S. Lewis because this answers some major modern objections about hell. Um, First, again, from the problem of pain. C.S. Lewis said, I willingly believe, we'll do the Revelation text in a minute, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful. Rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. That the older I get, the more profound that becomes to me. Uh, I'll say some more about it, but going with a quotation, they enjoy forever, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. People go to hell or they choose it. That's what they want. The people that go to hell, if, it, if they were to go to heaven, it would be hellish to them. The last place Adolf Hitler wants to be is in a place where it's all about Jesus and not all about Adolf Hitler. Well, hell's, he's, going to, he's, going to be, he's going to be destroyed in his horrible freedom when he gets what he wants. He will be a rebel to the end. That's why the doors of hell are locked on the inside. People are there because they want to be there. Now, they, don't, they didn't really know that's what they were getting. They just didn't want to have anything to do with God. They didn't want to have a God but themselves. They wanted to be Lord of their own life. They wanted their world to be wrapped up all in their stuff. So God's going to say, okay, okay, it's all about you. last place you want to go is heaven. Um, The next quotation, and then we'll go back to that Revelation text, comes from the great divorce. One of my favorite pieces from C.S. Lewis. Um, it's a fantasy, has nothing to do with earthly marriage. That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. Uh, the great divorce is about the, the disconnect, the, the gulf, the distance between heaven and hell. He's answering the poet Blake, who said that the poet Blake wrote about the marriage of heaven and hell, that at the end of history... It's all going to be okay. Hell's going to kind of merge into heaven. There's going to be a great marriage one day. Everything's going to be okay. Theology of Kumbaya, that's the marriage of heaven and hell. And that's widely accepted in our culture today. Well, C.S. Lewis said, "Mm, don't think so. There's a great gulf, a great eternal divorce between heaven and hell. Yeah, you, you get one or the other. There's no marriage, and there never will be a marriage between heaven and hell. Now, you know, there's a lot of people who think there will be, and they they live as if there will be, and they live as if their choices don't matter. Uh, Anyway, the great divorce, now it's a fantasy. Every time I introduce people to the great divorce, I have to keep saying, it's a fantasy, it's a fantasy. C.S. Lewis says in the introduction, it's a fantasy. 
Because what it's about, he's teaching some great stuff. Saw this performed off Broadway. I saw this performed um, down at the Blumenthal Center in, in Charlotte. It's amazing. If you ever get to see any of C.S. Lewis's stuff performed, see it. But particularly the great divorce. What the great divorce is, it's a fantasy. And it starts out in the gray town. The gray, dull town. Nobody likes each other. It starts out in the gray town, and there's a, he's English, there's a queue. What's a queue? A line. And guess what happens? There's a queue here in this gray town, and the people in line are fighting with each other. That does surprise you when you figure out what the gray town is. The gray town's hell. Um, and there's a queue here in the gray town, and they're fighting and grumbling. They're not nice to each other. As they're waiting in the queue, they're waiting in the queue to get on a bus. And they, they take a bus ride from um, hell to the outskirts of heaven. Now, again, it's a fantasy. It's based on, because, again, C.S. Lewis was a medievalist. His daytime job was he taught literature, Renaissance, medieval literature. There was a concept. I don't commend this theologically, but fun to think about. There was a concept in the Middle Ages uh, called the Refrigidarium. And what that concept was that in order to make hell a little more hellish, people in hell every now and again gets to go to heaven and see what the people in heaven are doing. That's to add to the pain of hell. I mean, in, in the in Middle Ages, they were serious about hell. And they want to do everything they can to keep you out of it. Anyway, that was the concept, that there would be like this quasi-vacation. From hell that you get to go to heaven and see what they're doing. Well, anyway, in the great divorce, they're standing in a queue. They're, they're, they're grumbling and fighting with each other. They get on this bus, and they go, they go to the outskirts of heaven. Now, I'll go ahead and jump to the end. Everyone that takes the journey to, hell, to heaven from hell, every one of them gets back on the bus and goes back to hell. Except one. And that's where it's a fascinating story is because when the people get off the bus, they meet folks. They meet folks they don't like. They meet folks they can't believe is in heaven. They, they learn that there's things they'll have to give up, like their lust and their greed. They learn that the longer they're in heaven, the more they will become like Christ. And that means they have to let go of some well-loved Christian behavior. I mean, not Christian, human behavior. So the the way, and it's fascinating. That's why on Broadway, it's these little vignettes of people meeting each other. Um, and, and there's only one person that chooses to stay. Everybody else gets on the bus and goes back to hell. Because heaven is just, you know, one guy gets there and he, he meets like, um, he meets a murderer. And the guy's is, is so upset. What's this murderer doing? I don't want to be a part of this murderer. And and the and the and the tour guide in heaven is saying to the guy who's offended at finding a murderer, um, he's trying to explain to him that it's it's okay. It's, it's okay. Um, um, the guy finally says he's so mad about finding this murderer in his heaven. He says, I, "I'm not going. I don't want to come and stay here. I don't any of. I don't want any of your bloody charity." And the tour guide says, that's it, bloody charity. That's what you need is bloody charity if you want to stay here. And the guy says, I don't want any of your bloody charity. Well, he goes and gets back on the bus and goes back. 
Well, so C.S. Lewis is painting the picture of how it is that hell's, the door to hell is locked on the inside. People that want it, people that, and they don't say I want hell, but they, they do say I want to be number one. They do say, I want to be the most important in the wor- person in the world. They do say, they live their life as if they say, my life is more important than all the other lives. That what they're doing is choosing hell. And, you know, so in, in, in uh, the great divorce, you get a little picture of the great town before they leave. The people in the great town keep moving further and further away from each other because they hate each other. They don't like anybody. They move further and further away from each other. So again, the the, the hell, hell is something you choose. Which I go ahead and, and I, I go ahead and address one of the major objections to hell. God is too loving to send anyone to hell. Well, that's an easy answer. God doesn't send anybody to hell, but He'll let you have your way. Which that's the quotation from the Great Divorce. One of my favorite quotations in all of the C.S. Lewis corpus. Um, and Jeffrey, Mac, I mean, uh, George MacDonald, who C.S. Lewis loved, uh, he, he was a 19th century writer, preacher. Um, George MacDonald is, um, is the tour guide for the main uh, character in The Great Divorce, just like Virgil is the tour guide in Dante's uh, Heaven. Anyway, uh, George MacDonald, one of C.S. Lewis's heroes, said this, which is why I think even C.S. Lewis is one, he knows it's one of the best things he ever wrote. And, and George MacDonald says to the person who's getting to see a little bit of heaven, there are only two kinds of people in the end. I believe this deeply. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously or constantly desires joy will ever miss it. So there's only two kinds of people in the world. People who look at God and says, God, thy will be done. Or the people that God says, okay, I'll let you have your way. You're all about your will being done. Thy will be done. And see where it gets you. Yeah, that kind of personality creates hell. And that kind of personality will suffer in hell for eternity. Um, anyway, see, so yeah, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose it. Uh, there's another place where C.S. Lewis says, the, well, in Screw Tape Letters, that's also great on, off Broadway. Screw Tape Letters, that's a senior devil telling a junior devil how to tempt Christians. And the senior devil says to the junior devil, don't forget, junior devil. When you're dealing with Christians, the gradual road to hell is the best. Don't worry about, you know, murder and alcohol and greed. When just a deck of playing cards will do it. And you hear what he's saying? The best path to hell is the grab Because we'll take the gradual path to hell. One little choice at a time. And before we know it. We are so far away from God. You know, none of us wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll just become a full-fledged apostate, uh, degenerate um, heretic today. We don't usually do that. But what happens is we make choices. And little by little, like the, like the air going out of a tire, little by little, we, we, we take that gradual path. And, you know, and sometimes we don't even get to the point where we wake up and say, 
what am I doing and where am I at? And I'm so far from God. So, um, yeah, the gradual path. And, and that's why God says there's two kinds of people. Uh, God says to people, thy will be done if that's what you want most. He'll let you. He's not, you know, he, he's... Well, I'm not even using an example because I'll offend somebody. But, I mean, God's not going to... I wish God would just come and take complete control of me and just make me do right all the time. That's not what he does. He lets us have... He lets us make choices. 3,000 of them a day, by the way. He lets us make choices. And those choices add up to it's our life. And before we know it, the life's over. And we may not really even realize where we've gotten ourselves to. But you need to be careful because that, where you got yourself to, may become where eternity, what eternity becomes for you. So, um, yeah, God doesn't send people to hell. God, you know, God gave His Son for whosoever believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but He came into the world so that the world might be saved through Him. Yeah, God doesn't want anybody to to choose to live separated from Him for eternity. But I see people right now living separated from Him. And God will let them do that. And God will let them do it for eternity too. And that's one of the reasons why philosophically I've got to accept hell. Because I have such, and I think this comes from the Bible, I know it comes from the Bible, I have such a high view of the human being. I have a high view of the human being. Your choices matter. God will not override the, the glory he has given you as a human being. God will not override your, your, your free will. God, because, I mean, you know, to say there's no hell means that, you know, what I do in this life is not that important anyway. It's all going to work out in the end. Well, that's a low view of humanity. I think this life matters eternally. And that's why I have a high view of, of humanity, and that's why hell, I think, is essential to the Christian doctrine. Because to get rid of hell sort of means don't even worry about it. Don't worry about the way you treat the people around you. Don't worry about Jesus. Just, just You only go one around once, grab all the gusto you can. You know, um, I actually had a person one time. I actually had a person. And we used to joke about this, but I actually had a person. And I, it, it happened in High Point, North Carolina, so I, I would never say the name, but if I said the name here, some of you may know this person. Um, I actually had a person one time. The request was at the funeral, and it was done in a, and this fit. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was not done in the church, and they wanted me, you know, I was the closest thing they had to somebody who could preside over a funeral. You can kind of get married in this culture. We talked about this some yesterday. You can kind of get married in this culture without clergy, you're increasingly being able to get buried in this culture without clergy. And there's part of me that's okay with that because there's some people, I don't want them to bother me about their funeral. I mean, like this guy, the family came at me, and I was, you know, of course I helped them. They, all the music was to be Frank Sinatra. And, in, you know, in a funeral home, you can play whatever recording you ask them to play. And I, I like Frank Sinatra. But... I did it my way. That has we we have actually referred to that as the anthem of hell. And that's what this family wanted. 
You know, I was fine with New York, New York. <laughs> but when, he, when they said, I did it my way, I said, just, just think about this in a minute. You know, people don't even realize what they've created of their life sometimes. This guy just liked Frank Sinatra. <laughs> well, you think about that song, I did it my way. There's two kinds of people in the world. The people who say to God, thy will be done. And the people that God will eventually say to for eternity, thy will be done. You, you enjoyed doing it your way? I'll let you go somewhere where it's all going to be about your way and not my way. Again, to, for some people to go to heaven, it would be hellish. You know, they would not be somewhere they want to go. That's what um, great divorce is all about. Um, so that, um, you can look at the Revelation text. Um, I hate to drop this on you as you leave, but I will. Hades and hell are not the same thing in the Bible. Hades is not the polite term for hell. Please read the book. Uh, read it carefully. Hades is the Greek term that gets used for the Old Testament term Sheol, just the place of the dead. That's why Hades occasionally is, is even translated death. Sometimes Hades is translated the grave. Um, by the New Testament period, Hades becomes um, the intermediate state, and you don't want to go there either, the intermediate state that empties into hell, just like the intermediate state heaven that empties into the resurrection glorified kingdom. Hades is, um, um, you know, when you die, to be technical, technical theologically, when you die, you wake up in heaven or Hades. And after, after whatever the length of time may be, you either end up in hell or you end up in, in, in the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Um, but Hades is sort of um, the, the next step. It's, it's bad, it's horrible. It's like, just like heaven is wonderful, but you go from perfect to perfect when you go from heaven to the kingdom. Uh, you go from damnation to damnation when you go from Hades to hell. That's why in the book of Revelation, you'll see death and Hades in the text if you're looking up your homework. You'll see death and Hades being emptied into hell at the end of history. Um, just like at the end of history, heaven, the Lord will bring with him those who will reign with him from heaven. So Hades is not just a polite term for hell. It's a different term. It's a different place. Um, if, if, if you go to, some of you have been with me in Israel, uh, particularly the tour guide I use, every time we drive through, the, the, the word hell comes from Gehenna. There was a valley outside of Jerusalem. That was the valley of Gehinnom, Gehenna. Uh, the Jews used that to, when they named hell, hell. They named it after that valley because that valley was known for two things in Judaism. And my tour guide, every time we drive through it, he says, we're, we're going through hell. Make sure we don't lose anybody. But anyway, you, you still can drive through. It's a beautiful area of Jerusalem now. But the valley of Gehinnom, the reason it became the term for hell in the biblical literature is um, before David conquered Jerusalem um, and the pagans had Jerusalem, the Jebusites had Jerusalem, that was the valley where child sacrifice was carried out. Now, in um, Jewish Jerusalem, after David conquered Jerusalem, it became where the garbage was burned. So it was always burning. So that's why the valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom, became Gehenna, became hell. So there's a visual.
in the Jewish mind of what hell is. Um, anyway, you can get some of that from that text in Revelation. Hell is too extreme of a punishment for the crime. How can you suffer eternally for something you do in one lifetime? That's another objection. Well, you, you, you can get to that point when you realize, when you forget that sin is first and foremost not against your neighbor. Sin is first and foremost, regardless of what it is. Sin is first and foremost against God. So when you when when you rebel against God, it's not just you did some bad things in this life. Sin and ongoing sin and holding on to sin is rebelling against God. You know that's why when David did what he did with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed, he prayed to God, "Against thee and thee only have I sinned." Well, I want to say, David, you really sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. But David was theologically correct. First and foremost, our sins are against God. So that's why it's not out of balance, you know, what, what the payment for sin is. What about that person who has never heard about salvation through Christ? This, would, this could take an hour, but I'm going to give you the short answer and let you get out of here. Number one, you don't go to hell because you haven't heard about Christ. You go to hell because you're a human being and you're sinful. Just let that sink in for a little bit. That's basic Christian theology. Uh, you go to hell because uh, you're in a state of rebellion as a human being. You're in a state of rebellion. You know, you stand up and you sing hymns like, um, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. This is another one of those hymns I'm going to stop one of these days and ask the church, do you really believe what you just said? Because I hope you do. Uh, and Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, there's that verse that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you really understand you're prone to wander? I mean, that's who we are by nature. We are. We, that's why C.S. Lewis said, hell is a perpetual state of rebellion. We're in a state of rebellion. As a human being, we're in a state of rebellion. That's what gets you judged, is you're a human being who's in a state of rebellion. Now, God has given you a, a method of deliverance in Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, you don't, you don't warrant hell because you don't know about Jesus. You warrant hell because you're a human being and you're in a state of rebellion. Now, okay, so how does a human being get out of a state of rebellion that doesn't know about Jesus. I mean, Jesus is a way out of the state of rebellion, hopefully. We do know that you reject Christ. That, that keeps you in a state of rebellion. To reject Christ means you have chosen hell. You have chosen your state of rebellion for eternity as opposed to Jesus and the lordship of Jesus. What about someone who's never heard about Jesus? You know, I wish some of the good Methodists I talked to would be as concerned about their soul as they are about the souls of those poor people who have never heard about Jesus. Um, but let's, let's say there's somebody out there who's never heard about Jesus. Paul says, the apostle, in Romans 1 and 2, there's enough of God in creation. You know, there's special revelation. Special revelation is this stuff. You know, but there's general revelation. General revelation is nature. You know, the trees and the... You know, the beauty of nature. There's a, that's general revelation. You know, the trees and the waterfalls will tell you about God. They're not going to tell you about how much Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for you. That's special revelation. But Paul says there's enough about God 
in general revelation to make sure that no human being is, this is Paul's language, without excuse. There's enough of God in creation for somebody to say, hmm, there must be God and it ain't me. Therefore, I've got to leave my state of rebellion and let God be God. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about people on that on the outside very much. Romans 1 and 2 is one of the places. And there is the um, reference. It's just fleeting, so don't hang out here too long. You know, if someone rejects Jesus or ignores Jesus or slights Jesus, I know what happens to you. So just hang out there in this culture. But, you know, there in, in Romans 1 and 2, it, Paul does say that all, we're, all, we're all rebels by nature. We all rebelled against God by nature. We, we want our own way. That's why we're selfish. You know, one of the first words a child learns is mine, mine, mine. That's who we are by nature. We're, we come in, but we're all rebel, and that's what that's what condemns us because we don't want anything to do with the Lord other than ourselves. But there's enough of revelation in God in creation to say there is God and it ain't you. And there is one phrase in there that says um, you're judged by the light that you have. But the implication Paul's making is there's enough light in creation. To condemn you if you still reject God after you've seen creation. And again, to accept God means you've got to learn you ain't it. You know, I mean, you can't say, I believe in God, but still I'm the captain of my own destiny. I believe in God, but my will is preeminent. I believe in God, but it's going to still be done my way. That's still enough to condemn. Because the condemnation comes not because you haven't done Christian theology. The condemnation comes because we're in a state of rebellion. And what, what conversion is, is laying down your arms and surrendering. Surrendering the rebellion and coming to God in Christ. So um, we can still do this for a semester. Anyway, go in peace. We'll do marriage tomorrow. That's more fun, maybe, kind of. <laughs>